Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Luke's Gospel, Chapter 10. Luke's Gospel, Chapter 10. What you're about to read should, should sound familiar to you. It's an image of the sending forth of a group of disciples in Jesus' name to prepare His way as He's moving from the upper Edna, the Galilee, all the way down the banks of the River Jordan to Jerusalem, where He will end His earthly ministry. And He has accumulated several disciples in that time. We're about to read where there were 12 that He sent out two by two. There's now 70. Or in some of your copies, depending on your translation, 72. But the fact of the matter is, as is the pattern of growth of the kingdom, the disciples made disciples. In looking at this, we can, we can assume that when the, the inner 12 were sent out, city by city, town by town, that they had gathered other believers, other people whose hearts were prepared. And as Jesus himself had taught the disciples, the disciples were now discipling other people. So this is how the church grows. It doesn't just grow by people um, coming into the building and then just happenstance hearing the Word of God. No, it happens when we intentionally take the Word of God to others. And in this case, 12 apostles went out to cities. They stayed in people's homes. They taught the Word of God and then how Jesus was the fulfillment of that Word. They gathered disciples themselves. And as they wander with Jesus, living with Him, hearing His voice, coming together, we see that out of the thousands that had been following Him, now there are 70 that are ranked as what we would consider people that now hold a master's degree. Apprentices, student teachers, those who are ready to go out into the field and make Christ known. Disciples do this in three basic ways. The first one is by making people curious, by sharing the love of God with them. Now it used to be in times past by other churches that I will not name out loud where some people would have a knock on their door They'd open the door to the words, have you found Jesus? And would then proceeded to be all but beaten over the head with a copy of the Bible. The scripture's version of, of this type of evangelism isn't bringing condemnation house by house, but bringing the love of God house by house. Demonstrating His mercy, casting out demons in the case of the text that we're about to read, healing the sick being a living representation of not God's wrath, but God's mercy, God's love. They will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And this is a demonstration of the impact that that has. Second way, once, they are, once their hearts are made curious by what makes you different from others, what makes you concerned about people when other people would just disregard me, what makes you loving 
in your heart when other people want to proclaim hatred instead, the difference is Christ. And as the Apostle Peter tells us in, his, in the second letter to bear his name, be always ready to give an account of the hope that is in you. Demonstrate love. Give them the answer. The answer is, of course, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection. In their case, the living word of God fulfilled in the life of the Messiah. And then once someone comes to be a disciple of Christ, disciple them. The Great Commission tells us to teach them all things that I have commended you. With a promise, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So as we begin taking a look at our passage for this morning in Luke chapter 10, when you get there in your copy, say amen. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. We live in a neighborhood where the harvest is plentiful. There are broken homes. We talked about this being Grandparents' Day, where grandparents are the, are the core members of the family that are holding families together, where there are broken homes, homes that are there broken apart because of, of divorce, because of uh, money issues, because of greed, because of uh, drug use, because of all kinds of things. And we as a church have a choice. The choice is either option A, let them live in the homelessness, uh, hopelessness. Let them live in the darkness. Let them not have an answer to hope. Become the fortress where we care more about what's inside the church than outside the church. Or option B, which is the Christ-like option, look at the situation and say, my, what a beautiful opportunity for ministry. What a wonderful chance to love people. To get back from behind the walls of the church. To demonstrate what it is to equip families. To, help, to be with the grandparents that are having to raise two or three generations of children. To see it as an opportunity. The harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. One of the things that being part of the St. Albans Ministry Alliance has shown me, demonstrated in the last little bit, is that we've got a lot of churches that have chosen option A. They've chosen to be the fortress rather than to be the missionaries. To just care about their own instead of caring about their city. And here Jesus is demonstrating not just for a city, not just for a neighborhood, but he's sending them out two by two. Each group of two goes to a city. And ministers to all of them. This is our example. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers in the harvest field. Go, verse 3. I am sending you out like lambs among the wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. Run to your place. This is important. Run to your place. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who pronounces peace is there, your peace will rest upon them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there 
eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. Now this is interesting. And this plays into the culture of the era. Back in, in these times, there were inns and there were public places where people could camp out, but more than likely, as a good able-bodied Jewish family, your job was to be, when a traveler comes on the road, you were to house them. You were to help them out. You were to be... Hospitality was a badge of honor in this culture. So what Jesus is basically saying, don't take any equipment for yourselves. Be wholly reliant upon God. Write this down in your notes. Be wholly reliant upon God to equip you for the ministry. I'll say that one more time. Be wholly reliant upon God to equip you for the ministry. Jesus is telling them, don't take an extra change of clothes even. Don't take a bag full of money. Don't take anything that will slow you down. When someone welcomes you into their home, invite the peace of God to rest upon that home. Bless them just as they are blessing you. Minister to them just as they are trying to minister to you. But be wholly reliant upon God for everything that you receive. Don't move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Now in a Jewish context, that's especially intriguing because they were very particular about legally what they were allowed to eat. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's that marriage again of mission plus evangelism. The ministry of mercy plus the ministry to the lost, both used in tandem. Not one or the other, it has to be both. That's the biblical example. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable that day for Sodom than for that town. Again, this is a very Jewish tradition. When you came to pagan land and you were crossing back into the land of promise, back into God's country, as we would say today. If you were coming from that horrible, heathen-infested place of Ohio, back to God's country of West Virginia, you would shake the dust off of your sandals because you didn't want that heathen mess entering into your ground. That was the cultural idea. So for them to stand in the middle of a marketplace and dust the, dust the, the, wipe the dust from their feet publicly was for them basically to say, you are as the pagans are. You are unbelievers. And I don't even want to have anything to do with the ground on which your houses are built. And it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than that city. We're going to get into a bit more of that in just a second. As he cries out, Woe to you, Sherazim! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For the miracles that were performed in you, if they had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, in the pagan cities, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum. Now this is the big city of the area. This is 
Charleston to St. Albans. As for you, Capernaum, you, will, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. I want you to underline this in your copy of God's Word or jot it down on your flyleaves. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me because whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So there's a lot to unpack in this passage. First of all, you are accountable for how much truth has been revealed to you. Write that down in your notes. You are accountable for how much of God's light He has shown to you. One of the things that Jesus talks about here when He calls out Sherazin and Bethsaida, these are Jewish towns. These are towns where the people's hearts should have been prepared through the Word of God to receive their Messiah, yet they rejected Him. The same thing for Capernaum. Capernaum's the big city. Capernaum's the big Jewish center, the center for learning. Where it's, a, it's Jesus' adopted home uh, in this instance. It's his base of operations, depending on how, how you want to look at it. But he's condemning them because these are the center of God's people where God's people are rejecting God. He's telling them that the pagan sounds up there that have never heard of Jehovah, those towns are going to be less condemned than you when the day of judgment comes. Because you saw the light and you turned it away. If the same miracles, if the same evidences of the one living God had been performed over there in those pagan towns as had been performed in you, then they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. But no, you who were who had Torah, you who had instruction, you whose hearts had been prepared for generations for this very moment had rejected the moment outright. It's one thing that we want to gather as we consider the Word of God this morning is that we are responsible with what we do with the truth that God has given to us. As with the parable of the talents, how are you using that truth? Are you investing it the way that it was intended for you? If your gift is singing, do you sing? If your gift is teaching, do you teach? If your gift is ministry, are you ministering? If your gift is being the silent worker that makes sure that the job of the local, the, the under, the behind the scenes stuff is done, are you active? In the Baptist tradition, we believe highly in the priesthood of all believers, meaning that there is no room for less than 100% participation. That's what the priesthood of all believers means. Peter tells us that you are a peculiar people. You are a royal, meaning all of us. Which means the church has to be fully committed, fully active. There can be no less than 100% participation. That's the way that our branch of the faith works. But anyway, what we're also seeing in this passage, the central dynamic at play is how the church, the capital C church, grows. Basically, it grows by believers developing relationships with unbelievers. 
not by lying about other congregations, not by commercialism, not by proving that your church has this program when the other church doesn't or something like that, not, being, not having the bride of Christ in competition with herself, but doing what you have been called to do. In Hylon's case, it's been to be a center of the community where our task is to know Christ within the church and to make Christ outside of the church, to know Christ and make Christ known. That's our function. The biblical pattern for church growth has been to make relationships with the people of your community. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Go outside. Meet people. Be friendly with them. If they're made in God's image, and guess what they are? Treat them like a potential brother or sister in Christ. Develop personal connections of friendships, bonds of compassion and love. Demonstrate a Christian love to them. That's where, the, that's where mission comes in. If you want a definition for missions, it's not necessarily the sending out of, of missionaries to foreign ground. The definition of missions is our ministry of compassion. The ministry of compassion. And when that love that you demonstrate causes an arousal, causes a curiosity within them, when they recognize the cross-shaped hole in their hearts, that's when you can live up to what Peter commands us to do. That's evangelism. That's when you offer your personal testimony. And that's easy to do. I know that we think of that as that awkward five-minute conversation, but guess what? God takes responsibility for that conversation, as we're about to find out. But I want you to pin this down too. There are three things that you need to know, and it doesn't necessarily mean any Bible verses. When somebody asks you about the hope that was within you, there are three things that you should always have available on your mind. Number one, write this down, who was I before Christ? Who was I before Christ? What is your own account of the person that you were before your conversion experience? Now again, one of the reasons that we tell this is because there's a misconception out there that you have to be absolutely perfect in order to be part of a local church. There is no more erroneous statement than I've ever heard. The church is the only place on earth, and I've preached on this a couple of times, where the only prerequisite for membership is admitting that you don't deserve to be there in the first place. When we come to the altar to give our heart to Christ, when we ask for, for church membership, we have to admit ourselves a sinner. None of us are perfect. If you're perfect and you're here and you're not Christ, get out. You'll mess the rest of us up. Because the church is not a gathering of the perfect. The church is a hospital for the imperfect. A support group where we come together, we love on each other, we do hold each other accountable and we teach each other, but we mentor each other to grow more and more into the image of he who is perfect. Amen? That's the church's function. So who was I before Christ? Who am I after Christ? That's number two. Who am I after Christ? Are you able to verbalize what you have done alongside your brothers and sisters? Are you able to verbalize the difference that your Savior makes in your life? Are you able to, to count your many blessings as that old song goes? And I don't mean your checking account. I don't mean the size of your house because all that is irrelevant. 
I mean, do you have that love, joy, peace, goodness, faithfulness, patience, forbearance, self-control? Do you have the fruit of the Holy Spirit being demonstrated in your life? That's the difference. That's the difference. Can you demonstrate that God is within you? Last thing. Number three. This is who my church is. This is who my church is. Rebuking not the gathering of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. But all the more so as you see the day approaching. There is a commandment in God's word. There is a commandment in God's word to gather as the church. I know that that is a misconception that's also spread about there, but here's the truth. If you're a Christian, you are part of the body of Christ. You are the bride of Christ, and you are, per God's word, to gather often, even more than usual as you see the day of the Lord approaching. Which means if you have read your newspaper in the past two years, we should probably be in here every day. Who was I before Christ? Who am I after Christ or through Christ? And who am I within the church? Who is my church? My church is Highland Baptist. My church is a place that has stood for 74 years in just a few days with one singular mission in mind, to know Christ and to make Christ known. To be a hub for activity within my community, to provide a safe place for spiritual growth for me and my children. That's my church. It's a basic conversation that anybody can have. You want a memory verse to go with it? Fine. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, meaning you, meaning whoever, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. It's a simple conversation that we intentionally make for some strange reason, to our detriment, that we make hard. Who was I before? Who am I now? Who is my church? Basic conversation. One that God Himself takes responsibility for. And this is how a church is built. Invite them to worship. If you're blessed by your church, pass that blessing on. And while you're at it, teach the faith. One of the things that uh, we are starting to do again is that when we get new members, or <clears throat> as we get new members, as we get things kicked back up and growing, we need to plug them into a place where they can be led, where they can be discipled, where they can form bonds of family and fellowship with our existing members. Amen? I remember several of you telling me about a program that this church had not in the two district past called uh, ASF, After Service Fellowships, where you'd gather together in different people's homes, have meals together, where the body of Christ would actually become the body of Christ. This is how churches grow. Teach the faith. Disciple others. You are a minister. Learn the craft. Learn your profession and become part of the ministries of the church. So let's go back to a couple of points. First of all, being wholly reliant on the Lord. What does that mean? 
as Jesus is demonstrating in this passage, be reliant upon Him for every need that we have. When it comes to the things of ministry, we're often asked to lay stuff down. Tithing, offering, tithing of our time, the giving of and committing of our talents to God that He gave to us. And that sounds like a daunting test, but I want you to take a look at the testimony of one of the Christians of ages past. This is Paul, who was in prison, who was also someone who was generating funds to the relief of, of famine victims back in the Holy Land. The church of Philippi was one that was not necessarily a wealthy church, but they gave everything that they could and then some, dedicating themselves fully, both financially and spiritually, to the work of the kingdom. And Paul, in his testimony back in this thank you letter, effectively writes, As you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me the matter of giving and receiving except you only. When people in the Holy Land were dying, you were the only church to send money to the relief. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. <clears throat> Not that I desire your gifts. I don't want any more money. I know what it is like to be in want. That's what he's effectively saying. What I desire is that more be accredited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Ephroditus the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, acceptable sacrifice, pleasing unto the Lord. But I want you to be confident in this when you give. I want you to be fully aware of this promise of God when you give to the work of the ministry. Whether it's your time, whether it's your talent, whether it's the work of your hands, the sweat of your brow, or whether it is your tithe check, whatever the case may be, my God will what? Meet all of your needs according to His riches and glory. Malachi actually says, test me on this. Test The voice of God through the prophet says, test me on this. And see if I don't open up the windows of heaven and pour blessings out upon you. You might not become millionaires. You might not be absolutely wealthy, but if you give to the work of the ministry and are obedient to God in this, God will, in fact, make sure that you still have a, the more faithful that you are, the more God will bless you. God doesn't bless disobedience, but He does bless what? Obedience. My God will supply all of your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. So He will supply our physical needs. He will supply our material needs. But more than that, He will also supply our discipleship needs. I just talked to you about the basics that it takes <clears throat> to bring somebody into the kingdom. That is, you're the messenger. God is the deliverer. You're the person that brings the Word of God the other person, the Holy Spirit, is the one who knocks on the door of the other person's heart. The Holy Spirit is the one who takes responsibility for what they do from that point on. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the, the Word of God. Jesus Himself puts it this way. All this I have spoken to you while I was with you. Now He's preparing them for His own departure. And they're worried. What are we going to do without you? What are we going to do without 
your teachings without you being right next to us, without us being able to go to you whenever we want to. And he's telling them, I am going to be with you. Here's how. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom God will send in my name, will teach you what? All things. He will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have said to you. So he does not leave you without instruction. If you have that conversation that you recognize as a divine appointment, where that you need to be kind to somebody, you need to answer with all love and respect the questions that they have for you, it is God himself through the power of the Holy Spirit who assumes responsibility. Why are we afraid? Really and truthfully, why are we afraid? If God says, and he just did, that he will take responsibility for every word that comes out of your mouth when you have that conversation with somebody. Why are we afraid to have that conversation with somebody? Don't. Heed the the example that we're given here. Anyway, on to being a messenger. This is why it's so vital. A lot of us when we concentrate on John 3, we only look to verse 16 and that's where we stop. But I want you to heed the urgency of what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. He starts out with that verse that we love so much. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But then he goes on to say, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned. But here's the point that we need to press. This is also something that you need to underline in your copy of God's Word because it's hardly ever preached on. I don't know why, but it is. And we need to understand it. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, what? Stands condemned already. We have this strange notion that someone based upon the type of life that they've lived beforehand will approach the throne of God and God will ray their hearts in the scales like the ancient Egyptians and say, okay, you've done more good in your life than bad. You can come on in. You've done more bad than good. You can go away. That's not what Jesus is telling us. One sin is enough to send somebody to hell. For sin cannot enter into God's presence, the end. I'll say that again. The number of sins is not the issue. The presence of the sin nature is. Sin is a stain upon the human heart that cannot be washed away by anything that we do. Works cannot do it. The only thing that can, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That's in the Bible. Meaning the only thing that can satisfy the anger of God is the blood of Christ. Is the blood of Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, as that old glorious song tells us. And this was what Jesus is telling. There is a sacrifice that's coming. One that is more potent and more powerful than all of the lambs, all of the goats, all of the calves, anything that's ever been given before at the altar. One sacrifice that will dominate them all, that will stay the wrath of God for all time. One that will wipe away every stain of sin on every heart if they do one thing. If they only believe. 
if they only believe. That's all it takes. You are transformed. Your sin is wiped away. Even your wants and desires, it's all changed. I make all things new, the Bible tells us. But those that have been shown the light and reject it, it's not that they're going to come to the judgment and God has to decide. They stand condemned. They're the walking dead, literally, spiritually speaking. You are spiritually dead outside of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. There's a trinity of us, body, soul, and spirit, the Holy Spirit. And outside of that completed trinity, you're not alive, spiritually speaking. Do, do we understand this? Are we convicted by it? The fact that the people in our families, the people in our neighborhoods, the people that we go to school with, the people that we see in the marketplace, that they are not going to be there when you're there after the judgment. We need to be convicted by this. They stand condemned already because they have not. This is the same thing that Jesus is telling about Bethsaida, about Cherazon. You had every opportunity. You had the Word of God taught to you. You had Torah. You had the prophets. You had the teachers. You had the rabbis. And yet when the Son of God came to you, you rejected Him. So we are being called, just as those 72, to be a messenger of God's mercy. In brief, we stand condemned before a holy and just God because we are none of those things. On our own merit, we cannot pass his judgment. We stand condemned already. But God himself provided the rescue by allowing his son to be crucified on a tree 2,000 years ago. Jesus, who asked three times in the garden, please let there be some other way. God had to answer the prayer of his own son, no. This is the only way. The only way we could have hope of salvation was for him to give his life in one of the most brutal ways possible. But through that sacrifice, God himself provided us with a rescue. Christ paid the debt that we could not possibly pay. He who was without sin, who knew no sin, became sin for us. So that in the eyes of God, you could be considered his righteousness. The offer is extended to everybody by faith. There is no exception. There but for the grace of God go. That's all of us are fallen. Every pastor that has ever been behind this pulpit, every teacher that has ever been below decks, every worker that we've ever had, all of us stand in need of a Savior. There's no one better than anybody else. We all have this one calling. Share that grace before it is everlastingly too late. And once that grace is shared, once it's been accepted, the offer, the Holy Spirit comes into that person's heart, transforms them into a new creation, someone made in Christ's image. And that's a ministry that we all have to carry. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, all peoples, all languages, all everything, no exception. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them.
teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And I'm with you always. This is our commission, not just the church, not just the organization, but every believer without exception. This is your job. There's one last thing that I want to touch on as we exit out of this passage of Luke. Uh, don't enter into a church service and act like you've been baptized in dill pickle juice. Oh, I guess I'll go to church today. This is a sacred moment. Do you realize that in your hands you hold the Word of God? You have the... the you have the blessing of being one of the few generations in human history to have a copy of the divinely breathed word, the instructions of all mankind in your hands. And we have the freedom, we have the liberty without persecution to come together in a room like this, to share it together, to learn about him together, to grow together and to work together. We don't have to worry about soldiers coming through those doors. We don't have to worry about being told from an on high that isn't the actual on high what to preach, what to do, what to think. We have such blessings. Blessings that this date should remind us that we have. So don't come before the throne of grace acting like you don't have anything to be happy about. God did not save us to be miserable for the joy of the Lord is... Our strength. What happened to those 72? What happened to the visitation teams that Jesus was sending out to grow the church? What happened to those that he was sending, as he put it, like lambs into the wolves' den? This is what happened. Continuing on with verse 17. The 72 returned with joy. And they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy and nothing will harm you. He accepted their joy and he instructed them on their joy. We were learning in Revelation on Wednesday nights about the two witnesses that the enemy tried to consume who, Jesus, who, who God himself protected as long as their ministry was in play. And guess what? He's going to do the same thing for you too. If God calls you into a situation to proclaim his word and you are obedient to him, God himself will surround you with his hand of protection. We see this play over and over and over again through scripture. In the case of Joshua, he gave us the most often commanded, the most often echoed commandment rather in all of scripture, which is fear not. Be strong and Courageous, for I am with you. As long as we're obedient, nothing can take you down. If you invest the talents that God has invested in you obediently, nothing is going to be able to separate you from Him. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At the name of Jesus, 
full of joy through the Holy Spirit. Uh, excuse me, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to the little children, those who have a simple, basic, unquestioning, unwavering faith. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have I committed have been committed to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except for the Father, no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal them. And then he turned to the disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that there are many prophets and kings who wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and hear what you hear, but did not hear it. How much more blessed are you right now? I want you to think about that as we draw the service of the word to a close. Moses would have given almost anything that in his own lifetime he would have seen the Messiah come. Can you imagine the look, the joy that Samuel the prophet would have had if he got to anoint the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and not just his ancestor? Can you imagine the look on the face of Jeremiah? And all those persecutions and all those times that he was running if one day he had heard news of a baby in Bethlehem. You are the generation that knows these things to be true. The generation who has heard from the voice of all the witnesses of old. As we talked about last Sunday, Paul got to point to his own churches and say, if you want, you can go to Jerusalem right now. There are over 500 people that saw this, that wrote about it. There are eyewitnesses alive to this day. You have within your lifetime the blessing of faith, having received the gift of all of those lives, of all those experiences. What do you do with that powerful legacy? That's the question, the challenge that this passage leaves us with this morning. What do you do with the legacy that has been given to you? In a few days, we will celebrate the 74th birthday of Highland Baptist Church. You are the inheritors of that legacy. Individually, what are you doing with the inheritance you have received? Are you being an active part in it? If so, praise God. Is there something that you've been struggling with, a way that you can contribute, that you've been hemming and hawing about? Is there something that you think that God is calling you to that you've been equipped to do and you're afraid to do it? Let me tell you something. God rarely calls us into something that we're comfortable with on our own. But I can do, as Paul said, I can do all things through him that strengthens me. It doesn't matter what you think you're called to do. If you're called to do it, do it. And he will strengthen you. He will equip you. He will ensure that whatever you put your mind to, whatever you invest, 
will come to fruition. Have faith in God. Remember, He's on the throne. And He will not call you to something to fail. If you're obedient in Him, just as He protected the 72 that He sent out, He will protect you as well. Whatever He calls you to do, He will give you the victory. And all God's people said. And so, Heavenly Father, as we go now into our time of invitation, Lord, we thank You for being a God who has seen fit that in our darkest hours You gave us the light of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That You sent us encouragers. That You sent us workers. Lord, the, the, harvest, the harvest is still white. The field is still plentiful. There are still many that need a touch of the Master's hands. So Lord, as we enter now into this time of invitation, if there are any within the sound of my voice that have yet to come to know you in that free pardon of sin, or if have yet to, to come to be a part of the family that you are calling them to be branched out to, if there are any, Lord, that just need a simple embrace to know that you hear them when they call, Lord, whatever the struggle is on any heart, as the musicians come forward to sing, whatever the case may be, trouble their heart to bring them to your table so that they may feel the warmth and the tenderness of your embrace to know that when they call, you will hear them. Bless this time now as we open our hearts into your hands. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.